my name is Zach. I'm one of the leaders here. If you don't know me, I'm excited to preach to you on Daylight Savings Time Sunday. Now, look, you guys came to church. You figured out the whole clock change. You lost an hour, but you're still here. So I think you deserve something. So I'm going I'm to share with you a very encouraging word that I believe will build you up today. I want to ask you to uh, give me a little feedback as we go. Uh, first service, I'll be honest, they were kind of sleepy. And I understand why, but I wanna, I wanna, I, I've probably got four hours worth of, of energy right now to preach four straight hours. I will condense it if you will engage with me, okay? <laughs> Sound good. If you guys look like you're dragging, I'm just going to keep on going. All right, turning your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. We're going to continue in our series, learning about Jesus. We've been talking about the fingerprints of Jesus. We saw in the beginning of the gospel of Luke that the maker of man became man in the incarnation, that Jesus took on human nature, came, and we learned that he came for us and for our salvation. Dr. Luke, as he's opening the scenes of Jesus' public ministry, is helping all of us understand, well, what does that mean? That sounds cool, but what does it mean and how does it apply to my life? What is Jesus really about? So we've been seeing a number of ways of understanding the salvation that Jesus brings. We saw, number one, that he's the last Adam, right? Contrasted with the first Adam that Scripture opens with, the first of mankind, with this incredible calling, this incredible opportunity, but left a legacy of death that's impacted the whole world. Jesus, the last Adam, brings a legacy of life. Where the first Adam's death kind of impacts the whole human family tree, Jesus' life has an opportunity to impact the whole human family tree that when you receive him, you're adopted into a new family. There's new blood running through your veins, so to speak, a new family legacy, a legacy of life. Jesus is the last Adam. We saw that Jesus is the anointed king, that he's bringing in a new kingdom, not the kingdoms of this world, but the kingdom of our God. And God's kingdom leads to flourishing, leads to the place where people truly come alive. So we saw he's the anointed king. Last week, we saw that Jesus is bringing good news to the poor. What a powerful way of understanding the work of Jesus when you realize that we're all poor. It's been said of evangelism that uh, sharing about Jesus with someone is one beggar telling another beggar where to find food, and that food is in Jesus. And for many of us, that's a, a, a metaphor or a theme or a way of understanding God's work in our lives it's so powerful and so meaningful and just, just shapes us to the core. As we continue in this scripture that we've been looking at, we're going to see a couple other themes that I want to invite you, want to lead us in a time of exploring. And my hope is that as we go through these different themes, whether it's the last Adam, the anointed king, good news to the poor, or the theme for today or the next couple weeks, that one, that you're going to learn more about Jesus. If you're not a Christian and you came today, you're checking Jesus out, man, we're going to be looking straight at him. You're going to get 100% right up, this is Jesus. If you are a Christian, man, you're going to get built up in knowing him. He's the treasure. This is going to be awesome. And you're going to get language to be able to understand or to articulate or to, to describe God's work in your life. And I bet that one of these metaphors, last Adam, anointed king, good news to the poor, the ones for the next couple weeks, I bet one of them's going to resound with you. And you'll be like, that's kind of 
man, that gives me so much help to describe what God is doing in my life, in Jesus. So Luke chapter 4, verse 14, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And Jesus came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll. He found the place where it was written, the scripture we've been sitting in for the last several weeks. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. There's the anointed king. To proclaim good news to the poor. That was last week. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's this week. Recovering of sight to the blind. That's next week. To set at liberty those who are oppressed the week after that. And to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That's Easter Sunday. And he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So let's focus in on that main theme that Jesus was sent by the Father to proclaim liberty to the captives. When we read that, what do you think about? What comes to mind? How are we to understand this teaching or this word from Jesus about what he was here to do? Maybe your mind goes to Harriet Tubman. Right, The famous uh, uh, leader who was born a slave in the American South who, uh, f- who escaped to freedom and upon tasting freedom said, this is heaven. I have to go back and I have to help. My family experienced the same thing. So she was a key leader in the Underground Railroad, this movement to free captives and bring them into freedom. Her nickname was Moses, right? So maybe that's what you're thinking. Is that what Jesus is talking about, this freedom movement? Or maybe you think Oskar Schindler, right? The the famous German who used his power, his prestige, his connections, his, his influence to free Jews from the Holocaust to help them avoid the concentration camp and certain death there and created a pathway for freedom for them. Maybe that's what you're like, that's what comes to mind. Maybe it's the Innocence Project, right? This, this work in America where lawyers are taking DNA evidence and they're using it to help free people who've been wrongly convicted of crimes and they're freeing them, right? Is that what Jesus is talking about? If you were in his audience in, in, in his day, those gathered around him as he read the scripture, your mind and your heart and your imagination would have gone to one place. And it was that Jesus was speaking about freeing the Jewish community from the Roman Empire. You see, in their day, I want to show you a picture of the Roman Empire. It had expanded as far as you could imagine. If you were there, if you lived in one of those areas, I mean, it was Rome as far as you could think about, and everybody you knew lived in the Roman Empire. It was huge. And the Jews did not like that. They didn't want to be a part of the Roman Empire. They wanted to be their own people. They wanted to be physically free. They wanted to be their own nation, have their own leaders, be who God had called them to be. And this hope of, man, we want to be free, they felt like was from God. 
that God was going to send someone to free them from this captivity to the Romans. That's what everyone sitting around Jesus, when he said this, when he said, this is fulfilled in me, that's immediately where their mind would have gone. It's where their hearts would have gone. It's where their imagination would have gone. As a culture, they were pregnant with this longing for freedom from Rome. But Jesus, as valuable as physical freedom is, he's actually speaking about something deeper than what their hopes were. And it's honestly, it's offensive to them. They get upset. If we read through the gospel, you'll see they don't, they don't like where Jesus is going or what he's saying with this, but he's targeting something far deeper. And I want to share that with you today because it's important for us to understand what Jesus is after. What type of freedom is he working? If you know the story of the Jewish people as recorded through the Old Testament, they were a family that God had called out, had made uh, into this family that God's blessing was on, and he was going to move through them, and, be, and they were going to be a blessing to the whole world. The whole world might know God. And he, God had called them into freedom. He called them to be a free people. And yet, in their freedom, they had this almost gravitational pull back to slavery. You read through the Old Testament, and it's God will, they'll be desperate. They'll be enslaved. They'll cry out, God, please help us. God will send a deliverer like Moses who will free the people. They'll be free. Oh, man, we're free. And then somehow, some way, they always seem to gravitate back into slavery. If you've ever read through the Old Testament all the way through, it's almost like this tragic comedy of how many times are they going to repeat this same cycle. Sometimes the slavery is to their own leaders. They'll have a king who's really brutal and he'll enslave his people. Sometimes they're enslaved by their own desires, their lust, their greed for what other nations have. And they'll literally, uh, the Bible says, they'll prostitute themselves. They'll put themselves into slavery because they so long for what the other nations have. Sometimes they'll be overtaken in physical captivity as we see in the Roman Empire and they'll be enslaved. It's a variety of slavery, but they always seem to make their way back there. Why is that? Why, as I share that story, do so many of us, why can so many of us see our own story in their story? So many of us can relate to, man, God set me free, and then I just somehow make my way back into slavery. Why can so many of us connect with that? Well, to understand that, we've got to go back to the beginning of the story. As I referenced at the beginning of this sermon, Jesus is the last Adam, right, coming after the first Adam. And so I want to take you into the opening of the story of mankind, the story of God. And that is this, God created mankind, created Adam and Eve kind of as these, the mother and father of mankind. They were made in the image of God, had an incredible calling, incredible potential. But as you know, and we've talked about, they turned from God, they rebelled against God, they did what the Bible calls sin. And in their turning, in their entering into sin, things began to change. Now, sin, it's not a word that we use that often in our day. 
It's doubtful that you're going to get on your phone after the service and look something up, the news or social media, and see someone referencing sin. When you go to a movie this afternoon, it's doubtful they're going to talk about sin or a song you hear on Spotify. They're not going to talk about sin. It's not a word that we use very often in our day, and yet it's a key concept in the Scripture that you and I need to understand in order to understand what Jesus is after here in this phrase. So I want to give you a definition of sin, and I want to give you two aspects of it. We could probably have more, but I want to give you two aspects of sin that are pertinent to our discussion and why there's this gravitational pull into slavery. Number one, sin is a verb. It's a responsible moral failure. It's something people engage in. So first definition of sin, it's a verb. It's an action. I lied, I cheated, I stole, I did this, I did that, right? It's an action. It's a responsible, moral kind of failure. Uh, that's one definition of sin. It's an important definition. It's a, it's a definition that weaves its way through the entirety of Scripture, and we're incomplete without that understanding. The second, or let me give you a scripture where it references this. Romans 3, 23 articulates it like this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right? So you see here, sin is a verb and every person has sinned. There's not a person in the world that has not sinned. We have all had moral failures. That's what the Bible teaches us, right? And if you've lived more than about 20 seconds, you realize that that is the truth. Sin is a verb in this sense, right? Okay, second definition of sin. That again, it, it, we might be hazy on sin in general. You might have heard that first definition. Most people I find completely like, oh, well, I've never heard, I never heard the second definition. So you guys, you came to church on Daylight Savings Time Sunday, you're going to learn something new. I learned this week that your brain burns 1.5 calories per minute while you learn, okay? So during this sermon, as you learn this, just know you're burning calories. You go have a few more chips at the Mexican restaurant after the service. Okay, second definition of sin. Sin is a noun. And in this case, it's a power that has enslaved all human beings. It is a dominion under which humanity exists. Okay, so first definition, kind of the focus is sin as a verb. It's something that I do, I, I sinned, I, I stole, right? Second definition, sin is a noun. It's a power or a dominion that humanity is under. Same chapter of Romans, Romans chapter 3, verse 9, says it like this. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike, meaning the whole world, are all under the power of sin. So you see sin spoken of in a different way. This isn't talking about an action. It's talking about a power that humanity is under. Jesus in John 8 says this, Very truly, I tell you, anyone who sins, there's the verb, now look at the second use, is a slave to sin. There's the power that humanity is under. Romans 5, comparing sin versus grace. It says this, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that, note this, 
just as sin reigned in death. Look at that word reigned. It's like kingdom language, like the reign of a king saying sin, the reign of sin is in death. So also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see sin is not just an action. It's also a noun. It's not just a moral failure for which I'm responsible for. It's a power source that humanity is under. Now, I want you to think of these like two eyes that are meant to work together, right? If you, if you would just do this for me, put a hand over one eye. Just put it up. If you only had one eye, right, there's certain things that you can see clearly, right? You can see kind of one side of the room clearly. You, you don't have much depth perception. You may not notice it now, but if someone threw a ball at you, it would be hard to catch with one eye. If you were driving, it would be hard to not hit another car with just one eye. Okay, now take your hand down. Put your eye up over the hand over the other eye, right? You see a whole new angle or aspect, and you can see clearly that way. But the best way, you can take your hands down now, when you have vision in both eyes, right, it gives you this depth of field and perspective, and it gives you depth perception that allows you to see clearly. We need both of these definitions of sin in order to see clearly. Today, we're going to focus on definition two because it's what's most pertinent to our theme that Jesus is speaking about. But that's not to uh, uh, lessen the importance of definition one. If we had all day, we'd do both, but we just have a few moments together. So we're going to do the second one. So now, this idea of sin being a power that people are under is the biblical understanding of why there's this gravitational pull back to slavery over and over and over again. That's what Jesus is speaking about, that he's come to bring liberty to captives, that the whole world under the captivity of the reign of sin, Jesus has come to set free. So where the, where the Jews were hoping just for a temporal, man, if we could just get out from this circumstance, right, life would be good. Jesus is saying, well, that would be great, but I'm actually going after the root of this thing, and I've come to set captives free. Now, today, if we kind of fast forward into our world and we hear that, it's kind of like, oh, Zach, I, I kind of get the idea of sin being a moral choice, right and wrong, that you're responsible for. I, I got that. But this idea of sin being a power or a reign that we're under, that seems like very antiquated, like belongs to yesteryear, like an idea that shouldn't we move beyond kind of this idea of spooky forces, you know, kind of controlling the world? Is that what you're talking about? Is that what we're looking at? That just seems, I don't know, like not for today. Uh, America as a whole, the kind of the culture and the generation that we're from, we have lost, in, in a great way, we've lost our awareness of sin as a verb, but even more so, we've lost our awareness of sin as a noun, the power source that is overall of humanity, and much to our detriment. I want to read to you the words of Andrew Del Banco, who's an American historian, teaches at the University of Columbia. Uh, and he said this, there's a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil 
and the intellectual resources available for coping with it. The repertoire of evil has never been richer, yet never have our responses been so weak. What's he saying? As we have moved away from this idea of sin being a power source, a dominion, right? We've lost the intellectual or spiritual resources to be able to face adequately the evils of our day. Now, to my understanding, Del Banco is not a believer. He's a historian, and he's writing this from a, a secular perspective. But I think it's interesting and important for us to explore this together. Why do we, as Americans, have such a difficult time thinking of sin as a reign in which humanity is under? I'm going to give you a little history lesson. We're going to go back to junior high, maybe early high school history. So if we can go back to the Roman Empire... We're going to walk through several uh, hundred, maybe even a couple thousand years of history. If we can put that uh, picture back up. So Roman Empire, Jesus' day. Upon the death of Jesus over the first 300 years after him, the gospel spreads throughout the Roman Empire. The message of Jesus goes everywhere in this empire. And as it goes forward, it changes the way that people see the world and understand the world. In our message about faith and science, I talked about one aspect of that. Another aspect of that was a belief that life and history is not cyclical, meaning circle of life, life, death, rebirth, life, death, rebirth, like the seasons of the year, but that history is progressing, that God is taking history somewhere toward this kind of vision of the future, we talked about the vision, the heavenly vision, the new heavens and the new earth a few weeks ago. And we talked about Jesus being the last Adam. Well, this idea began to change the way people see the world. They began to think of life as not just kind of circle of life going round and round and round from generation to generation, but that God was on the move and he was taking history somewhere. It's where we get the idea of progress today, right? It's rooted in that. Well, around the year 300, uh, all of Rome becomes Christian or supposedly Christian, right? There's an edict. Now everyone's Christian. Whether you can do that and actually make people follow Jesus or not, you know, we could debate that at another time. Historians are like, we don't know how genuine this is. But at that time, there was a defining moment in the history of the Roman Empire and the history of Christianity. Is all of Rome became Christian. Whether they actually practiced the way of Jesus or not, they were Christian, right? Shortly thereafter, uh, the Roman Empire falls. Falls, and if you can think through middle school history, Vandals, Vikings, Visigoths, right? Those uh, armies come through. They take out all of the Roman Empire, and Europe kind of goes through this, these seasons of different leadership, different kind of uh, ruling powers. And even though kings change, even though emperors change, even though empires change, one thing remains the same. The gospel of Jesus continues to go forward. It continues to spread. It continues to impact and transform people's lives. It's amazing. It's an important word for us to think about today. That the gospel goes forward and it continues to impact and transform hearts and lives. Around the 1500s, you have the Reformation, which we've talked about before. Martin Luther, John Calvin, et al., they're reforming. The church, and then the 1600s, you have the start in Europe 
of what's known as the Enlightenment. Now, what is the Enlightenment? What, you've probably heard it in history. Like, what, what are we talking about here? And how does this get back to us today? I'll take you there. So the Enlightenment. Was this belief, what came about, that was like, hey, we believe in progress. We believe that the world is going somewhere. It's going toward this new heaven and new earth idea. But we don't need God to get there. We don't need the church to get there. We don't need God's word to get there. What we need is human potential. I think, therefore, I am. If we can harness the potential that's in humanity, we don't need God. You can believe in God if you want to, but we don't need him. We can progress toward this new heaven and new earth idea. And the enlightenment begins. And it begins to spread. And if you understand American history, you understand that many of our founders were deeply influenced by the ideas and the ideals of the Enlightenment, right? And this kind of Enlightenment idea uh, is baked into the history of America, even into our spirit today. I want to read you a, a, a journal entry from a man named Andrew Carnegie. He uh, was a, a leader in America in the 1800s, early 1900s. He uh, was a steel empire builder. In fact, they say if he were alive today, his net worth would be $310 billion. Third richest person in world history, okay? Super influential, Scottish by uh, heritage. He's an American steel magnet, and he is a product of this time. Think 1800s, 1900s, right in there. And here's what he writes. He says this, when I was in a state of doubt about theology, including the supernatural element and indeed the whole scheme of salvation through vicarious atonement and all the fabric built upon it, you could just put when I was in a doubt about the truthfulness of Christianity, he said this, I came fortunately upon Darwin and Spencer's works, the data of ethics, first principles, the descent of man, etc., so he comes to the teachings of Charles Darwin, the evolution of man, and read what happens to him as he begins to learn about this. Reaching the pages that explain how man has absorbed such mental foods as were favorable to him, retaining what was salutary, rejecting what was deleterious, I remember that light came in as a flood and all was clear. Not only had I got rid of theology and the supernatural, but I had found the truth of evolution. I mean, he's using the words of religious experience or religious conversion, right? And it's a shift from hope being found in God and God's leadership to hope being found in human potential. So he says this, all is well since all grows better became my motto, my true source of comfort. Man was not created with an instinct for his own degradation, and that idea about sin, just put that aside. For from the lower he has risen to the higher forms. Nor is there any conceivable end to his march to perfection. Right? That's Andrew Carnegie's experience. There's the power and the potential of human nature. Right? And this idea shaped Europe and America and shapes us today. Right? We say, man, if we could have more economy... 
If we could have more technology, if we could have more government, depending on what your political party is and how involved they'd be or not be, right, then we would progress as a society. What I want to uh, present to you is this kind of view about human nature as being good and progressing towards this ultimate uh, utopian end is a very, very, very isolated perspective within the history of humanity. This is challenging for us as Americans to hear because it's kind of our bread and butter. Like this is when you're in school, man, this is what you're going to, you're going to get history through this lens. But it's the perspective of a small minority in human history. Interesting thing about Andrew Carnegie, while he's progressing, he's building this steel empire where he's taking on the world and unlocking human potential, he did it. He was known for doing it on the backs of the poor and the working class. That he was known as one of the harshest bosses you could ever imagine. When there was accidents in the steel, kind of, you know, when they're producing steel and working on steel, all he cared about was not the people. He cared about the slowdown of production. So he was a brutal boss, exposing people to the worst of working conditions. <clears throat> Why do I share that with you? Because what I want to share with you is that one person's kind of experience is not the experience of all. If you were to ask those steel workers, well, tell us your view of progress in human history. I don't think that they would say things are progressing. I don't think they would say man has unbridled potential. They would say life is hard. We're beaten down. So that most steel workers wouldn't last beyond the age of 40 because it was such brutal work. I want to read you another perspective happening around the same time period. And I know this is going to ruffle some feathers, but it needs to be read. And I would just want to invite you to hear another perspective, also in the same idea of people going through life experiencing radically different views of progress and human nature. This is Malcolm X. Uh, I believe that God is now giving the world's so-called Christian white society its last opportunity to repent and atone for the crimes of exploiting and enslaving the world's non-white peoples. Does white America have the capacity to repent and to atone? Many black men, the victims, in fact, most black men, would like to be able to forgive, to forget these crimes. But most American white people seem not to have it in them to make any serious atonement. Indeed, how can white society, note this, how can white society atone for enslaving, for raping, for unmanning, for otherwise brutalizing millions of human beings for centuries? What atonement would the God of justice demand for the robbery of black people's labor, their lives, their true identities, their culture, their history, and even their human dignity? A desegregated cup of coffee, a theater, public toilets, the whole range of hypocritical integration, these are not atonement. Malcolm X is speaking a different perspective of the gravity and the destruction of men like Andrew Carnegie who said, man, human potential rooted in me, I'm going to build it. And then they would do that on the backs 
of generation upon generation of people who would experience the dark side of humanity. These people would not say, humans are ultimately good, we have a good nature, we just need to progress. They would say, wow, life is hard, people are evil, and we are in slavery, literal, physical, uh, economic, spiritual slavery, all of us. Why do I share that with you today? If we were to fast forward from the days of Andrew Carnegie and Malcolm X and we were to look into the horrors of World War II, we were to look into the horrors of the different genocides that have impacted the 1900s and on into our century, if we were to look, I even opened up social media today and I saw a picture of a four-year-old Syrian boy walking through the desert with a, with a plastic bag and he's walking by himself and they said in the bag is his only belongings and it's the clothes of his mom and his sister who were killed last week. And he's just walking through the desert alone at four. I'm speechless. I want to encourage you to think, regardless of what your upbringing has been, I want you to think about the perspective of so many in our world is not that humans are basically good and progressing toward a good end with hope in themselves, but it's more in line with the biblical view of sin, that the world is under this power source of sin, and we need to be set free. Now let's go back to Luke 4. Let's read the words of Jesus again. He, God the Father, has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. Jesus is speaking a declaration of war right here against the power of sin and the devil and death. This is a war declaration. This is a shot across the bow. In fact, Jesus leaves this scene of teaching and his first action, one of the first things that he does is he goes and he casts a demon out of a person. And Bible commentators will say this is very intentional that it's put right there because it's a declaration of war on the power of sin that is enslaving humanity. One author said that we are not to read the Bible as a, as a kind of religious help book to make us kind of feel better and be more spiritual. No, it is a story of a battlefield. And God himself has now entered in to take on sin, death, evil, the devil, take on those things that are enslaving humanity for the purpose of bringing freedom. You should talk to me on that one. That's a good word. 1 John 3.8 says this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2.15, he, God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus. So now you see God on the move, triumphing over evil powers in Christ. Hebrews 2, that through death, Jesus might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus has come to bring freedom to the captives to take on the devil head on. He goes to the cross. He takes the greatest evil that can come on anyone 
He takes it head on. The maker of man becomes man, and he goes to the cross, and he takes on death. He takes on demonic powers. He takes on evil. He takes on this power source for you and for me. He takes the worst power that could be offered, and he rises from the dead. He conquers over them. Jesus is here to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 1.13, for those that receive Jesus, he has delivered us from the dominion of darkness and he's transferred us into a new kingdom, the kingdom of his beloved son. In Jesus, you, when you receive him, you are freed from captivity to sin's reign of death. When you receive Jesus, you're receiving that the God of the universe has took on human flesh and has come to drive the power of the devil out from the world. And you're receiving that, that you no longer live under that reign or in that kingdom. You're in a new kingdom. When you receive Jesus and you begin to grow in him, you're being freed from captivity to sin's power. So this sin that owns you, and you know what I'm talking about, these habitual things, you're like, I want to change, and I just don't seem like I have the power. I just keep going back and going back and going back. In Jesus, God has waged war on the things that keep you in chains, and he's bringing you freedom, and in him you receive power, not because your hope is in yourself, and you're going to muscle it out, and you're going to become great, and you're going to develop. No, that you have a powerful one who has come for you and fills you with power that you could walk free and live free. You will be freed from captivity to sin's presence. As we talked about the new heavens and the new earth that King Jesus is going to bring, there's no sin there. We're freed from the presence, the power, and even just the the reign of sin and death. That's amazing. That's what Jesus is talking about. I want to invite you to stand. I've talked a little too long, uh, but man, this stuff is rich. And I want to uh, share with you as we close... I just want to share in response, just real honestly, um, man, there's some of us that have been and are under the reign of sin, and we're oppressed by it. Just be real here. And I want you to know today that there's good news for you, that Jesus has power to free you from the reign of sin. Some of us are oppressed that we're like trapped in sin that we want to get out of, but we just don't feel like we have power. I want you to know that in Jesus, you have power to walk free. And I want to point you with hope. I don't want you leaving here today angry at the world, critical of everybody else, pointing out ways that everyone else is under the power of sin. No, I want you to leave here filled with hope. Not hope in yourself, but hope in Christ and the gospel. And where God is taking us. And I want to release you to go this week in hope, in power, that you could be a part of freedom. Coming to captives here in Dallas, in our everyday places of life. So I'm going to pray for you. And if you will, extend your hands. Jesus, we proclaim you, God, as the new king who has come to bring freedom 
to captives. Every person in this room where we have been under the reign of sin, we've not even had language to describe it, but it's affected us mentally, spiritually, emotionally, financially, and relationally, Lord. We proclaim that you, God, are bringing freedom today in Jesus' name for everyone bound in habitual sin. It's just like I just keep going back to this thing over and over and over again. We say today that you are free to walk in new life, Lord. For every one of us that is hopeless or has rooted our hope not in you, but in our own performance, in our own striving, in our own careers, in our own bank account, Lord, thank you for freeing us from placing our hope in things that can never satisfy and can never build, Lord. But we got a new hope today, and we can go forward as people of hope, as carriers of hope into our city today. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed. God bless you as you go.